Uzo and Ked. Two cities, two peoples, divided by one wall. Made from the hardest elf diamond found anywhere. Well, in places it's made from elf diamond. In areas broken and eroded from decades of warfare, chicken wire takes its place, attached with scotch tape and surrounded by explosives. To the north lies Uzo, a prosperous, duplicitous, resource-rich city of technological innovation and aristocratic ambition. To the south lay Ked, a poor, angry and destitute province sliding towards a guerrilla war with Uzo. What Ked lacks in wealth, luxury and oat lattes, it makes up for in the strength, intelligence and resolve of its people and weaponry. They make tools that are particularly effective at ending human life in creative and excruciatingly painful ways. Tensions have reached a fever pitch as assaults, raids and bombs have erupted across Ked. We find ourselves in a drafty pub drifting off its axis towards the slummocky wet back alley of northeastern Ked. A man who looks just like a man, balancing an eight-legged stool on his chin, recounts to his elbow a time when pasteurised milk could be bartered for cans of freshly squeezed onions. An all of a hullabayou, a kraken at the slurpy door. A barbershop quartet of oysters known only as Skinners over 18s but under 22s skaggle in. Drip, drip, drippy goes the licorice candle in the alligator's mouth. It never tells the right time. The Alligator Inn is known for being Ked's largest paper shredder of time. Hours can be spent at the inn without ever aging backwards. A string of tadpoles nestled in the crease of a smile line wait for P.I. Brandybus. Seventeen bones belonging to the widow, Lady Frances Ferdinand, were found in Ked. To be specific, a fibula, a tibula, a pelvis, and an assortment of tarsals. In a burgundy satin bag, found inside a giant tin of tuna on aisle 18 of Ked's seventh biggest supermarket, formerly known as Big Dave's Dirty Dinners, but now commonly referred to as the supermarket. P.I. Brandybus is no stranger to foreign objects found in tins of gelatinous fishing trails. The last three years he's worked exclusively on cases of missing bones found within tins of kippers. So successful is he at solving such cases that he sits on the board of Big Ked Tuna, offering advice on enhanced tin security. A potential conflict of interest, that as it may be, as the saying goes, anything to get fed in Ked. P.I. Brandybus asks the tadpoles if they can speak alone. The tadpoles reassure him that anything and everything can be said freely. Casting his eyes from the tadpoles to the face in which they sit, he says, What's your name? Depends who's asking. I am. Ted. Ted, it's important you keep your one working eye over my left shoulder at the lobster playing the sitter. I've been followed. It's not the first time, there won't be the last. I'll do just that. Forgive me, I can't really speak. Every time I do, I run the risk of killing the tadpoles. I understand. No, I don't think you do. Why is that? That was a test. The correct response is silence. Anything that doesn't look, sound, and smell like silence unfortunately carries the inevitability of death. That's two tadpoles that have been smooshed against the puce lining of my smile already. Please stop. We must stop. P.I. Brandybus removes a pack of freshly churned Crayola from inside his trench coat. 
He begins writing directly on the circular glass table between them. He makes note of the wood trim around the table and recounts a Proustian memory of a grapefruit he once fucked on a table very similar. Under the glow of a Napoleonic lamp, in big childlike block letters, he writes, March 15th, 2032, what, where, how, when. In order for me to get both hands around the scruff of this rabid dog's neck, I'm going to need you to answer some questions. What's of immeasurable importance is that you answer them as thoughtlessly as possible. The tadpoles show no sign of acknowledgement because they can't. P.I. Brandybus nods, scrawls something else on the table. Bagels, bagpipes, bed linen. The most inquisitive oyster of the group wonders how these items relate to the case. P.I. Brandybus informs them that mouthing words beginning with B allows him to enter a flow state, a phenomenon illuminated in many best-selling self-help and creative blockage books. Bolsheviks, belly button, bubonic boobs, ah. A literal light bulb appears above his head. It liquefies into a question mark and drips Dali-like all over Brandybus's pot-marked face. Yoki bowl plasma clings, bukaki-like, and sippy dips off Brandybus's cubist chin. A trench coat such as the one P.I. Brandybus wears, made from the blubber of delinquent seals, looks better the more Yoki plasma coats it. Too many cases were nearly left unsolved as P.I. Brandybus replied to compliments on Beaver. 52 cases to be exact. Seven months spent with his iPhone pressed to his snout, replying to every Tom, Dick, Heather and Harry. Three instances of gout and a kidney slopped into a jiffy bag later, and he's the picture of medieval health. The least lascivious of the oysters recounts in alarming detail the last time they saw Lady Frances Ferdinand. Nine days prior to the discovery of her bones, the oysters had been invited to a game of lawn tennis in District 9 of Uzo. On this particular occasion, 17 of the six oysters were waiting on their proof of pedantry. No one passes through the scrum-began fucky-fanks of Ked into the gilded gates of Uzo without it. Streaming vaxically between the thin gold reeds of the Uzo gates, carried by a wet breeze, a tennis racket with an iron frame, a few pink tennis balls, and a sea urchin carrying El Plutocrat oysters. Boss, written above the entrance to the tennis court, gave the oyster a disquieting feeling. The sort you get when your sex organs are turned into blood oranges. Climate activists formed a totem pole at one end of the court, acting as umpire. Rather than do the job of umpiring as they hadn't been asked to do, they instead critiqued the work of Voltaire and scratched the missing person pictures off cartons of curdled milk and leaked all over the court. Needless to say, the game was abruptly vaporised. Lady Frances Ferdinand was last seen mopping up all of the kudjiwam from the court, in a state that our tadpole described as communist agitation. Having taken a phone call prior to the third point of the eighth set from her nephew, Willy Willy Beamish, something the oyster knew a lot about, involuntarily attending orgies held by the lascivious oyster brethren, using the most contemporary and available psychoanalytic theory, her mood, said the oyster, seemed disassociative. Fuck weasel, said P.I. Brandybus. This detail makes the case exponentially more complicated. In his mind, where no one else could hear him apart from Ursula and a few mind police on the late shift, he recounted in banal and excruciating detail why this complicated it. I'd share it with you, but you'd be compelled to press custard fingers into your eye holes. Mind police HQ. Modeled on the office scene in Billy Wilder's 1960 classic of American cinema, The Apartment. Grid-like and grey of mind. Reams of blank paper engulf one-third of the office. Sergeant Pock slides his sausagey thumbs beneath his braces and rides them halfway down his chest, just beneath his scone nipples. Looking out at an exasperated bureaucratic kingdom of mind policery, he smacks the back of his head, causing an eye to shoot, pool-like, and scares across the office floor. 
Four divorced cigarettes stand idly by the coffee machine, chitter-chattering. One of them, the shortest, is a blue belt in jiu-jitsu and takes great pleasure in making the other cigarettes feel bad about their life choices. Across the coffee machine and double takes, there's only one thing that can happen when a group of cigarettes, or cigs as they're commonly known, are found around a coffee machine. Cigarettes have to form a circle and take turns licking each other until one of the cigs gets so wet they unfurl their tobacco-y demon and die. This is the third time this week. Three in the morgue. You're banned. You're all banned from a coffee machine. I'm up to my neck in missing persons. Mediocre chips and brown suspenders. You lot aren't helping. Sorry, Sarge. Which of those should we start with? The brown suspenders. Interrogation room 10 is full of boxes of brown suspenders. Take them to the foundry. But, Sarge... What? All of the rubber hazmat suits are all known to the Women's Curling Club. And? Without the suits, we're likely to burn to death. I've accounted for that. I've checked with the bookies. Off you go. If you're sure, Sarge. I'm sure. Pick up the remains of employee 96T48 and throw him in. Is that a lowercase t or an uppercase t? Lowercase. Is there anything you'd like me to pass on to your families? Just that I love them, Sarge. And I'm... Sorry for the butter incident. Bobby's bits are in the back of Bill's Bentley. That all? Yes, Sarge. And you? I'm really sorry, Sarge. <laughs> Suck it up, son. No breakfast. Very well. Deathly Hiyazaki and Mr. Watanabe. At 36.07pm, Mao Hiyazaki drowned in a bowl of pear juice. Curiously, by mere minutes, his death foreshadowed the ceremony of an honorary doctorate at Mao Hiyazaki University was bestowing on him. The students at Mao Hiyazaki University were excited to finally meet the master, who had remained a recluse for 42 years. The news came as such a shock that all 188 students took it upon themselves to perform Harikiri, a ceremonial gesture that involves stabbing one's lower abdomen and disemboweling yourself. You could call it a sad day. You could also call it Auntie Pauline's hemorrhoid cream if you were so inclined. Mr. Watanabe, the caretaker, had to purchase the most expensive detergent to clean the graduation ropes used to mop up all the blood. The purchase of that more expensive detergent created an evolutionary echo that woke Mr. Watanabe's childhood Komodo dragon from a 400-year sleep. Dangling upside down, bat-like, inside the unfertilized egg of a French nun, Mr. Watanabe felt a stirring sensation in his small intestine. Historically, this has always been the canary in the giblet mine that would warn Mr. Watanabe when an ancestral pet had been woken up. In the summer of 69, Brian Adams summoned his adolescent marsupial and for ten straight days no one could remember how to speak to their mothers. Mr. Watanabe feared, based on the increasing discomfort caused by the feeling of this stirring, that this could be much worse. He thought to himself, Do my thoughts make me? Or do I make my thoughts? Mr. Watanabe was prone to ask searching philosophical questions whenever he felt anxious about a potential genocide. Fortunately, Komodo dragons kill humans with unrelenting and savage ease. Thinking about it, that's not fortunate. Mr. Watanabe did the only thing a man can do in a situation such as this. He made a diagram of a Persian windmill dated approximately 700 AD. Everyone except for Derek to the safety point. We've had a little hiccup with the nuclear reactors. If everyone can leave their belongings at their stations and promptly follow the arrows to the neon safety point. On your travels, some of you will pass what looks like glowing melted pistachio ice cream. 
as best you can avoid coming into contact with it. Wouldn't want you sticking hungry fingers into it, only to find it dissolved. Thank you. What the fuck are we going to do? No, we can't send the zombies in to clear it up. Why? Because they're fucking unionised. Of course we didn't meet their pay demands. We're not a fucking charity, Oscar. God knows, maybe four minutes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Until total nuclear meltdown, yes. Yes, that's correct. If we paid the zombies the additional 14 pounds of lamb a week, they'd have resolved this without everyone turning to radioactive ash. I have to go. I need to give Derek his spinning wheel hat and kindly floss shield. Yes? Well, you pay peanuts, you get monkeys. You pay monkeys, you get Derek. In the attic of a flat in the suburban southeast quarter of Ked, also known as District 27, a couple can be heard breaking up by a nosy bookmark sitting betwixt the pages of Dolly Emberton's best-selling beach noir novella, Love Sick Simon and the Salted Caramel Jacuzzi. Ordinarily, at this hour, the bookmark would be having a kip after a few hours of being thumbed about, but this particular evening, the scurrilous voices of the couple were jabbing and jiving in its sullen little lug holes. We've changed the names of the couple to protect their identities. Everything else you read here is verbatim, as recorded, in a testimonial by the bookmark. Jerry Gumshoe, 34. Molly S. Lennox, 26. You were annoying last night. I'm annoying? Thanks. How do you think that makes me feel? You think I'm annoying? You aren't annoying. You were annoying last night. All we do is argue. That's not true. We argue less than 10% of the time, you're just predisposed to focus on the negative as a throwback to a paleonific preset in which a preponderance of negative experiences kept you attuned, alert and alive. It's Darwin. You always do that. What? You always bring it back to a paleolithic preset and Darwin. I can't do this anymore. We go around in circles. It's a cycle of abusive behaviour reinforced by my codependency. You don't understand my needs. What are your needs? I don't want to be with you. It's not working. We've tried. Please, Molly. I'll do whatever you ask. One more chance. We've tried so many times. I'll do anything. Please. I... Please. I... I need you to dress like a geisha girl and put the wax penis of a life-size model of Nelson Mandela in your mouth. Is that really the only way? Okay. Can you give me 11 days to source the life-size model of Nelson Mandela? Dying Duke, part one. Ben Nevis would a barrow with a cherry-lipped Ted talk on its welly face. Jumping Jacks bash Ben Priest prancing in palaces made of the broken bones of stillborn babies. A Sunday Sally Goose whip whistled right off the back of an uninsured Gungren. Two for one offers at the Dying Duke for pints of apple and tarmac Betty Wet. The Prime Minister wipes a tarmac Betty Wet tash from his slug lip. Lady Frances Ferdinand readjusts a set of half-moon fuchsia-tinted spectacles on her spindly wand. Suspended in her feudal fingers, an Egyptian scroll written in Roald Dahl's ashes. From the start she thrusts in her eye, it's obvious to everyone who might happen to be observing just how solemn a situation this is. Obvious to everyone, of course, besides the Prime Minister. Tiny Edward munches in his eyes, and a Looney Tune's outstretched tongue. He releases a lime piss sweet and asks, is this important? Lady Frances Ferdinand uses a remote control to extend the mechanism in her neck. The Prime Minister has a chance to react, 
He has the cursed lips of Lady Frances Ferdinand kissing his hippocampus with the revelations found in the scroll. Fart crumpets guffle out of the Prime Minister's stupid mouth. It's a grave situation, one involving many unmarked graves. Lee Van Cleef in memoriam. Fags in lily liquid oil. A marching band of inconsolable frogs fill a teapot of tears and scatter them in the open mouth of Jim Broadbent. Everyone who had ever lived, and many of those who hadn't, were in attendance at the wake of Lee Van Cleef. LVC as he became known to three people, provided, in the words of Obart Gebert, and I quote, a sustained and unflinching look into the soul of a fractured nation, with all its hopes, dreams, kinks, foibles, fanny farts and paedophile uncles. His astral projection into Dimension Z will leave a people in mourning at the departure of its third favourite son. End quote. In the entrance to the Musée du Van Cleef, in an 8x10 perspex box, sits his famous black cowboy hat, black shirt, black trousers, chaps and black boots. Whispers, and not so whispery waspers, whisper and occasionally wasper through the dark and hallowed corridors of power at the heart of Ked. Wasps. The Heimlich Ted Offensive called an emergency meeting in their usual underground HQ beneath the David Cornwell Archive in District 49, northeast of Ked. A motley crew of vagabonds, ex-military types, failed assassins and PE teachers. Together they sat around a poker table without the cards or poker chips and collectively wondered where the term motley crew originated. Unable to agree on its origin, the most butch member, who happened to be a butcher, burst into flames. Green embers flicked from his nostrils before shiftily disappearing. As the golden owl on the pin stuck to his beret cuckooed and took off, the meeting commenced. Eyes wide shut, eyes wide open, Stanley Kubrick lives in my old man, which, as far as it's possible to tell, seemed to be the group's motto. Fifty-four sets of hands shook each other up and down in a recital of Ring-a-Ring-a-Rosie. An Abercrombie and Fitch model pulled a piece of loose skin flap from under the fold of his armpit and produced a mint-green, five-by-three lined card. It read, Lee Van Cleef has departed for Dimension Z. If there were ever a time to lodge a surprise assault on the military infrastructure of Uzo, now would be the time. There's a second-hand Cluedo board in a charity shop in the 14th arrondissement that will put us inside the belly of the bastard's belly button. A set of dominoes falling one after another like a 4,000-year-old ruin in the shape of a middle-aged Sylvester Stallone took hold of them, arming and carping about the place in raucous Falaguya. An excellent plan, said one. If I could remember what he or she looked like, I wouldn't tell you. It's not important. Another chimed in with a mouthful of saliva. I have a spelly idea that might very well spoosh when they clitter inside unawares. We can, at the most opportune moment, give them a valley of voopsie they'll never see coming. One word. Wasps. I bought a nest of wasps from a prop master who no longer needed them for a Michael Haneke film. Killer wasps. I don't actually know if they're killer wasps, but they were in the script, which I have a copy of if anyone has a penchant for the icy cold Inoue and lacerating societal critiques that comprise the Austrian master's oeuvre. Four and a half sets of fingers shot up. I've got your email addresses. Expect a PDF. Just remember it's for educational purposes. It's also been watermarked with Angelina Jolie's name, so any dissemination will land her squarely in the throes of John Milton's bad books. You've lost a gold tooth. I had it when I left. 
I've either lost it on the way to you, or it's somewhere here. You've got 14 minutes until my next client. You can either spend that looking for your tooth, or we can continue. Continue, please. Uh, uh. Shut up. Yes. Yes what? Yes, Madame Bovril. Uh. It's Madame. Sorry, Madame Bovril. Gingivitis. What? My dog. Oh, is it here? I didn't say you could move, did I? Um, Madame Bovril, as much as I enjoy hanging from an inverted crucifix dressed as Noel Edmonds, I think the blood is rushing to my head. I feel a bit sick. Like I might throw up a lung. And my sheens are a bit sore. I dare say, bloody. Hello? Yes, that's me. I'm afraid Gingivitis had what looked like an epileptic seizure, but we've since discovered he choked on a gold tooth. Dancing in the pale moonlight. A mid-morning destruction derby always sets Colonel Drex up for an auspicious day of jam tots and murder. His eldest daughter recently married the Prime Minister's son, Gav, in a gorgeous ceremony on the Luc de Lac Rogue. Colonel Drex arrived in a five-wheeled Hummer in a coquettish colour. Only 38 minutes before his arrival, Colonel Drex had sweated through forest green PVC military overalls while inserting his penis into the mouth of one of the members of the Seven Smiths, a faction of the Heimlich Ted Offensive, known for their gruesome and some may say deplorable methods of revenge that often but not always include large amounts of lemon sorbet. Colonel Drex treated himself to an apple strudel and a marzipan sandwich for what would be considered a huge victory to the government of Uzo and a devastation of unfathomable consequence to the sometimes, but not always, oppressed people of Ked. Beaming a broad, buxom smile of brilliant airport case teeth, Colonel Drex took his eldest and most sexually virile daughter onto the ice rink which formed a dance floor post-wedding. There he grasped her, like a child grasping the hand of his dying mother with whom he had recently consummated the relationship. The pale moonlight cut diamond confetti of their flesh, and with one big, wet, slug-laden kiss, Colonel Drex released Sonia from her shackles and into the weaselly arms of a weasel boy, Algav. Algav, not short for Gavin or Gaviscon, just Gav. Today I offer a short recap. This was a world of confusion caused in no small part by manufacture and design. The people of Uzo, known unappealingly as Uzonians, live in what has come to be referred to as a techno-feudalist faux democracy, while the neighbouring people of Ked have come to live inside an anarcho-syndicalist, pseudo-occultist, commune-esque dystopian hamlet. This was a world of multiple overlapping realities, not in the sense that you mean, but in the Baudrillardian sense. Femini. Femininity. Good boy.
telly belly. Teddy sits on a couch made of cockles throwing up his gutty wats. His mother Aniseed paces up and down the kitchen while spaghetti dangles slocky-like from the ceiling. Her pacing has become so emphatic and laboured and lasted so very long that the heels on both of her feet have entirely worn away. Feeling the flicky worm nub of her soul peeking out through one of her heel holes, she becomes volcanic with rage. So phosphorescent that she began to tell the truth to her son about her infidelities. Smithy Chops. Final destination, Gumbo. Next stop, District 7, said the giddy train conductor, in a low drawl that resembled John Wayne, but not early John Wayne, later John Wayne, in his 60s John Wayne. George Smithy looks uneasy, wearing his favoured ruddy face behind a sheet of tinted plastic. Impossible to tell what colour the tint is under the fizzy glow of the fluorescent strip lights. Regardless, George, or Smithy Chops, as he's known to his acquaintances, sat, knock-kneed in brown corduroy trousers, a damp shirt, and a navy football manager jacket, with a copy of Alex Ferguson's favourite leather speedos tucked into his left pocket. Using an industrial car cleaning hose picked up from home base, Smithy Chops turned the barrel on himself, shooting jets of yellower urine and bat larvae into his tinted plastic face covering. Suddenly spotting a man in a Mr Blobby costume sitting directly in front of him that he hadn't seen before, he feels obliged to explain himself. Helps keep it clean, you see. A lot of soot down here, you know. Keeping entirely in character, the man in the Mr. Blobby costume utters the only words anyone's ever heard Mr. Blobby make, which is to say, Mr. Blobby, Mr. Blobby. George shows all the signs of understanding that you'd expect to see from two animated people speaking the same language. He shakes his head in thunderous disapproval. No, no, not mine. I collect it from schools. You'd be surprised how cheap it is to purchase the urine of children. Or maybe you wouldn't. The train lurches to a stop like James Gandolfini sharting his fifth calzone. Well, this is me. Lovely to meet you. Take it from me. Coming on your belly isn't as undignified as you may think, as the doors flick back together like Siamese twins. Mr. Blobby looks down at his belly expecting to see come, but sees no such thing. Instead, he spots one of those blue and yellow IKEA bags made from tarpaulin, where George had been sitting, extra shiny and slick with what looks like urine. Mr. Blobby thinks he should think it's weird that he hadn't noticed the bag before, but he refuses to think it. A seagull having its tonsils removed is rudely interrupted by the double burp and belch of the train tannoy as the conductor clears his throat of three nearsighted mice and says, A reminder, only those with blue tickets can proceed beyond the next stop. If you do not have a blue ticket, you will not be euthanised. I repeat, you will not be euthanised. Anyone attempting to be euthanized without a blue ticket is liable to be fined 1,400 giblets with a potential court summons and prison sentence. Inspectors patrol this train on a fortnightly basis. You have been warned. Next stop, District 4. Vim Goff Principal. On the tallest hill in Ked, 14 miles from the commonly agreed upon site of the Tree of Knowledge, nine upper middle class millennials with mortgages sit in a semicircle on stackable Lego chairs each ankle-deep in a bucket of sunny delight. Vim Goff, a sinewy Swede with a body like pebble glass and the jaw of a gurning Bruce Wayne, holds a tiny blonde doll and a pink dress in front of the crowd. Sitting inside an open Venus flytrap in nothing but a pampas nappy, Vim Goff extends his arm holding the doll and swivels it into a perpendicular motion. 
in a high-pitched voice that would make your mother squeal, the doll expounds on the pros and cons of bourbons versus custard creams. Taking a vote at the end of the three-hour lecture, custard creams wins five to four. Vim Goff, who becomes very shirty not being allowed to vote, pulls an original Hieronymus Bosch out of his ass and unfolds it like an orienteering map. How's the baby? Keeping us up, but good. Uh, of course. Is she feeding? Yeah, she has a feed in the morning and then one in the afternoon. Is that from the bottle or from your... your tits? I knew it was a bad idea. You haven't grown up at all. I bet you're still living with your mother. You used to love Mum's place. You're a 37-year-old man. The rent's cheaper and I get all the breast knock I could ever want. Emily, don't go. How wide did your vagina get when it was crowning? 12 inches? 14? Escalator. Garrods. Uzo's biggest shopping centre. Seven days before Christmas. Jenny Hartley Baker, Jim Hartley Baker, and children, Sarah and Tom Hartley Baker, are greeted by a choo-choo train carrying Santa's little helpers and a freighter of botched buttery bagels. Each of Santa's little helpers has a ghoulish face like a stocking stretched over Bradley Cooper's face. They join hands and chortle and prance in a scene that reminds Jim of second favourite Peter Weir film, Picnic at Hanging Rock. It occurs to Jim that his enjoyment of that film is in no way transferred to the uncanny event unfolding before him. Each little helper leapfrogs over the other in time with Nelly Furtado's Maneater. Their grand finale involves a series of backward somersaults that results in them spelling the word phalanx. A less rapturous round of applause than your typical rapturous round of applause follows and the Hartley Bakers are ushered upstairs. Before them, hurtling skywards, is a giant metal transformer with sharp, evenly spaced and equally sized teeth, also known as an escalator. Jim feels his heart reverse engineer itself like a prolapsed arsehole. What is it, love? I can't, Jen. It's happening again. You don't mean the visions? Yes. Kids, I need you to run in a straight line out of those doors now. But mummy, why? Just do as I say, now. Public order policing. 64 OLED TVs and a wall-mounted 8x8 grid in the lobby of a fintech unicorn specialising in data protection for guide dogs. On every screen, Scat News beams Sophie Hugh Edwards, blonde, blue-eyed, runs on four morning espressos and a 2pm bump of the nostril noughties. Her disdain for the inhabitants of Ked, only matched by her repulsion for her media magnate right-wing father, Bill Hangman Burdock. The reason for his moniker will be explained at a later date. Beside Ked's most auspicious statue of a Robin Redbreast sitting inside the cockpit of a Magnum 1800, with a set of goggles on its forehead, or whatever that section above a Robin's eyes is called, commemorating the victory of the Battle of Wegglepeg, Sophie Hugh Edwards, or the Princess, as her cameraman and producer privately call her, regales the stirring countenance of the afternoon's tremulous events. The government is looking at giving police new powers so events such as those we've seen here don't happen again. I'm here with Home Secretary Kem Jevely Braver. Mr Jevely Braver, we've seen protesters scaling the Magnum and straddling the Robin Redbreast. I'm here to let the police force know I will back them when they do the right thing. And in this particular case, what is the right thing? Whatever action doesn't result in a mass backlash and uprising from the public, 
I'm assuming you think they should be arrested. Sophie, I say no uncertain terms. These thugs should be cuffed, arrested, waterboarded. They should have tiny incisions made under their scrotums and strapped to crucifixes upside down to bleed out slowly. This is, of course, unless there is any kind of public reaction or outcry which could jeopardize the usual draconian function of our police state. In the event that that looks in any way under threat, I have retrapped everything I just previously stated. So medieval-style punishment if the public allows, not medieval punishment if the public doesn't allow it. What if half the public think it's a good idea and half the public don't? We would consider that a mandate. To do it? Yes. In the heart of the upper-middle-class community of Arondissement 12 on the north side of Uzo, nestled in a leafy cul-de-sac, sits Mandrake House, a sheltered housing community for the over-55s but under-78s. The caretaker has been on a seaside holiday for eight days, leaving the place entirely unwatched. A series of etcher-edged hallways with pastel-coloured doors all coalesce around the main theatre. The theatre hosts Panto at Christmas, but otherwise acts as an occult snuff show for the bored residents many of whom are approaching 78, with a growing a new way of having to leave soon. These shows act as a refreshing form of entertainment and a reminder that life could be a lot worse. Last Thursday they watched a masked orgy in the style of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, followed by a lot of indecipherable low hum chanting while the men linked arms formed a star and were ritually sodomised with pool cues, lathered in extra long life piccalilli. It's days like those that really make the hairs on your toes knot together. Are there any rules? Only one. No one is allowed to ask how anyone is. Hello. Is that Mary? No, it's Sandra. Sorry, I, I meant Sandra. I won't keep you, Sandra. No, I'm sorry. I really must go. We've got Gary. Excuse me? You heard me. We've got your boy. What do you mean? What do you mean, what do I mean? Your son, Gary. We've got him. Here. He's in a Barney the Dinosaur costume with electrical tape around his mouth and he's tied to a chair. His wrists are tied to an Argos office chair, the popular ones, the, the reasonably priced ones. The 39.99 ones? Yeah, those. His arms and legs are taped to one of those. Why, Gary, you've got my carry taped to one of those reasonably priced Argos office chairs in a Barney costume. Yes, Sandra. Can he rig this wrist free inside the bindy of a dinosaur costume? I don't think so, one sec. No, he can't. Why? Because he's taped to the reasonably priced chair up tightly. No, why have you got him? What do you want? Hmm. She's asking what we want. I don't know. Shall I ask Gary? Yes. Gary, what do we want? I don't know. Let me have a think. Sandra, are you still there? Yes. We'll call you back. Okay, if you need any ideas, let me know. There's, there's my mother's jewellery. Probably fetch a few thousand pounds. I could give you the keys to my house. I just need a few days to move out. There's only eight years left on the mortgage. That's probably your best bet. Take the house. Thanks, Sandra. We'll, we'll have a think and call you back. If you could act scared the next time we call, hysterical and scared, then resigned and inconsolable. I think I can do that. Thanks, Sandra. 
Redefining success. It is now two weeks since the rebel force known as the Heimlich Ted Offensive exploded through Shibiyaba gates, hidden inside the 14 humps of an imported Siberian camel, at 4.12am on Tuesday the 17th of October. Having Trojan horsed their way beyond the Holy Gate into Uzo, they promptly massacred the inhabitants of beloved cookie factory, Mama Yam's Cookie Creams. Reports that this was an actual fact a paedophile ring remain reported but as yet unconfirmed. Further reports that underage children made the cookies with a mixture of chocolate, butter, dough and the remains of decomposed children also remain reported but unconfirmed. The concern is that currently 175 lorries carrying strawberry-flavoured hubba-bubba chewing gum are being used to annex the 28 arrondissement of Uzo. It appears the Heimlich Ted Offensive specifically targeted this area, despite the 13th and 15th arrondissements being located directly beyond the Shibiyaba gates. The significance of the 28th arrondissement so far remains a mystery. Home to the city's best apple and licorice strudel, last remaining Frank Lloyd submarine, and the unconfirmed but widely considered most sarcastic taxidermy deer in the world. The Uzo Ministry of Deathness and Defence has so far sent 48 and a half men into the war zone to deal with a militant group. Of those, 12 remain alive but in critical condition. Six have made contact to confirm an advanced position. I'm just hearing regrettably 15 have now suffocated by asphyxia, apparently trapped in a complex web of strawberry hubba-bubba. 13 and a half men and four child soldiers remain unaccounted for. The names of the dead spelled backwards will now be appearing on your screens in tasteful Garamond italics. A baby wearing a bulletproof vest and Von Dutchka wielding a pink AK-47 has asked to sit down with Macy Gray David, the newly elected foreign secretary. Speaking on Uzo Day, Macy Gray David, when asked if the counteroffensive could be categorically considered a failure, said this. It's about redefining success. If we shift our perspective, it's possible to call this a success. It just requires a little imagination. If, for example, rather than stating our objective is to recapture the Annex 28 arrondissement, but instead to say that we intended to misplace it and retrieve it at an as yet unknown date sometime in the future, it becomes a success. It's just a case of looking at it from a slightly different perspective. Three-bedroom house port conversion. A three-bedroom house owned by landlord Bull Turnham of Turnham Limited has recently been converted into a pod house. Bull is the first landlord in Ked to be granted permission by the council to convert brick and mortar houses into pod houses. Take your average semi-detached three-bedroom home. That's one, two, three bedrooms. Ordinarily, you could slot six tenants in. Often, five given a third bedroom is usually the size of a parrot's coffin. No longer. The government have responded to the public outcry for more housing with a new initiative, Pod Housing. Using 78 tonnes of leftover PPE equipment from last year's pandemic and an increasingly desperate underpaid workforce, they've been able to supply landlords with polyester curtains. Your average room previously held one occupant. Now there's space for seven. Zigzagging polyester curtains throughout the room in a snakes and ladders fashion allows for a greater efficiency and increased occupancy. It's a no-brainer, says Bull. Culling of a Chinese deer. Hazy grey, bluey green and ashen light puff pastry circles in sanguine sand dunes. Gath-masked tubular men trophy wife their spittle glocks at the gold crescent of a hunter moon. 
standing in a velvet cloak of 1977 majesty, a tiny woolen hat and fluorescent overalls stands Robert De Niro. A rifle slung over one arm, he thinks about the yummy aftertaste of his morning kedgeree and three tablespoons of maple streep. Bob, as he is colloquially known to Wonderkind director Michael Cimino and the principal cast of The Deer Hunter, but no one else, is agitated. An extra, hired as rolling mist, is refusing to work because the time it takes to make herself diffuse hasn't been factored into the schedule. Michael Cimino has said he will pay her whatever she wants, whether that's Werner Herzog's vocal cords or Warren Beatty's libido, he needs rolling mist for the poetic and symbolic deer hunt that acts as a foreshadowing and anthropomorphic device for De Niro's character arc. Without the mist, it'll be obvious they're shooting on styrofoam and MDF at Winewood Studios, and not in fact in the high-altitude, elegaic, mountainous terrain of Ohio. De Niro, while taking a sip of instant coffee from a mug in the shape of Jack Nicholson's mouth, has a sudden vision of a 74-year-old Robert De Niro parodying himself from a range of as-yet-unmade Italian-American gangster classics, while marketing for the fourth most popular brand of bread in Ked. Beads of sweat collect on the back of his neck like a family of crabs, as he wonders whether what he has just seen is a premonition or a hauntological nightmare borrowed from the mind of Tim Burton. He retreats to a private toilet where he recites the alphabet backwards and attempts to remember every horrible thing that ever happened to him as a means of forgetting this intrusive vision. Having relieved himself of the morning's muffins and scotch eggs, he pulls his wide trousers up and buckles his belt, spits into the palms of his hands and looks in the mirror and says, what would Macaulay Culkin do? And promptly returns to set. On set, careening across the studio floor via a zip wire, and contravening all common self and hafty practice is the animal handler dropping from the zip wire in slow motion like a Jonathan Glazer music video into a flan cake. The first assistant director is shouting at the top of his lungs that of the two nationalities of deer that were on offer, Chinese and Hungarian, he'd asked specifically for Hungarian. Having worked with Chinese deers before, they tend to require upwards of 15 takes, a requirement likely to put the production over schedule and over budget. Sitting cross-legged and eating a dairyly sandwich, a Chinese deer looks on dolefully completing the Sunday Times crossword as its handler unflatteringly has flan jet washed off herself. Lenny Fennel, enfant horrible. Exquisite close-ups of male musculature set against a sandy beach. Ruffled blonde hair belonging to a young cad in a tight army t-shirt and skinny camouflage trousers. A yellow comb has been spray-painted army green at the request of Lenny Fennel, Uzo's enfant horrible of propagandist cinema. She has a new film out, Summer of Sweat and Glory, the third in an anticipated nine-film love letter and co-production with Uzo's Ministry of Culture. Ten centaurs of no older than seventeen flick sand off their hooves playing cricket with a grapefruit in their recreational hour before they return to sticking bayonets into bags of green sand stamped with the words, Ked Cadets. Many of the boys who join the academy at nine have shank-shafted their first Ked Cadet by the time they're 13. Boys board eight to a room. Lenny Fennell has described this film as Harmony Corinne's Gummo meets Claire Denis' Beau Travail. She anticipates anticipating her own anticipation and showing it to the world. 
nostril nachos. Cement and melted down Nazi uniforms were used to turn the inside of a giant turtle shell into one of Ked's most sonically luxurious nightclubs. A man who looks like he's made from the sewn together contents of a tin of tuna and a prolapsed anus with a handlebar moustache summons a raver into the five-dimensional toilet cubicle. Alright, this isn't it. Yeah. Nostril natural. Yeah, go on. Yeah, having fun. Yeah, it's my birthday. My mates are down from the far side of Ked. Ah, uh, yeah, your mates are here, are they? I lost them about 22 minutes ago. No signal. Stick with me, Ked. I know the spot for an afters. Yeah? <laughs> Have another one. You sure? Of course. Enough nostril naturals to go around. <laughs> go again. I think that'll probably de me for now. Go on. Don't embarrass your new mate. We're mates, aren't we? Have another one. Here. Have that. I couldn't. That's the length of a football pitch. Go on. I won't take no for an answer. Then we can go and have a biggie. A big biggie with nostrils full of yummy nachos. Go on. Mm. <laughs> I, I feel a bit weird. Of course you do. It's a rave. That's why you're here. Where do you live now, then? District 11. Ah, uh, yeah, where the Ferris wheel is. Opposite the dual carriageway. Yeah. Do you rent, then? Yeah. Do you rent, then? Yeah. Yeah, do you rent, then? Yeah. Do you rent, then? Yeah. Do you rent, then? No. Oh, so you got a mortgage? Yeah. Nice. I just bought a place in District 13. Oh, nice. Yeah, cost a bomb. Getting out of the bank, but let's just say the missus is making up for it with the morning face fuck. 